It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey everyone, Ray here, and I've got your next read. John Glenn was a Marine Corps officer with 59 World War II combat missions under his belt. His wingman was Ted Williams, two-time American League Triple Crown winner who, at the pinnacle of his career, was inexplicably recalled to active service. Over the next half century, these two men would both become household names, the affable astronaut and the notoriously tempestuous left fielder. Their enduring friendship, forged in battle, would see them through exhilarating highs and devastating lows. Through unpublished letters, unit diaries, declassified military records, manuscripts, and new and illuminating interviews, the wingmen, the unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams by Adam Lazarus is an inspiring, epic, and intimate portrait of two American legends, larger than life and extraordinarily human. The Wingmen by Adam Lazarus is available everywhere. Books are sold. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 431, The Father and Mother of All Explosions. Last time, at 3.47 a.m., now August 19, 1942, about one hour before the main attack was to start, a small German convoy sailing to Dieppe bumped into the Allied vessels making for Yellow Beach 1 and 2. And not knowing that there were many more enemy ships out there, the German escorts shot off a shell star and then shot into the approaching ships. Operation Jubilee had, at its base, luck, but that was now gone. Still, it was hoped by Hughes Hallett and others that the Germans would think that this was just a much smaller exchange of vessels, and they were right, at first. But the Germans were now fully awake and on alert. How would the Canadians and commandos adjust to this? The plan for now, though the men were shaken, was to stick with the idea that the commandos would land on either end and take out the large guns. Commando leader Lieutenant Colonel Dunford Slater to the east and Lord Lavat to the west. Only then could the main invasion force come ashore safely. But opposing them were men like Hauptmann Richard Schnonnersberg of the 3rd Battalion of the 571st Infantry Regiment. His place with his men was about one mile east of Dieppe, and Schonnersberg made sure his men were awake and vigilant with constant checkups. And in such a location, Schnonnersberg heard the gunfire seaward. But he guessed, and he was told, that when he got back to his barracks, it was just another clash between British speedboats and a German convoy. He agreed with this and laid down, which is when another though stronger warning came through the radio. Oh well, who needs sleep anyway? Schonesburg got up and decided to get everyone else up for an impromptu alarm trail. 
This meant the garrison was roused from its slumber, and all the nearby batteries were put on alert. But this was only locally. Further to the west and east, on land and at sea, all around him was still quiet. When the shooting between the ships to the east was calming down, there still remained seven R-boats to take commandos to shore. Of course, they had lost their support craft in the battle, but as these ships were uninjured and nothing had been called off, it was full speed ahead. One of the R-boats, LCP-15, had the Beachmaster for Yellow 2 on board, a Lieutenant Lewis, and as such, they decided to proceed with their part of the mission. As LCP went in under the command of Lieutenant Tom Bucky, they all saw another star shell rise into the air. Fortunately, this one was too far away to illuminate them. The downside was that the men on LCP-15 could not see any of the other boats around them. Still, needs must. Five minutes to zero hour, Captain Peter Young, commander of the Yellow 2 group with his 19 men, were put ashore, in the right place, and they could see the white cliffs of Bernouval. But not only did they, these men, represent only 10% of the force that was supposed to have landed here, they were also limited in their weapons. A single Bren gun, six Thompson machine guns, 10 rifles, and two mortars. Seeing this, the sailors offered to join this undersized group, but Young ordered them to stay put. After all, they, the sailors, was his only chance of getting home once this was all over. The commandos walked up the beach and saw the gully got wider as it went up. That would only be to the good, but then they came across the barbed wire. And like everything else they lacked, they had no cutters or Bangalore torpedoes. So Young said, follow me, and he began to climb around the wire. But the sides of the gully were too slippery. The men just slid down again and again, which is when Young saw the pegs driven into the chalk. The Germans must have done this as a backup. Well, Young started up, and everyone else followed. Once on top, Young turned around and saw the sea in all its glory. This was easy, as it was full daylight now, which allowed him to see further east, and there he spotted six other landing craft obviously heading for Yellow One Beach. As they would soon have help, Young took his men to their rendezvous point, a church behind the battery that they were to take out. With all that had been going on so far, Young could be forgiven for not asking, where were the Germans? As we have seen, a massive pre-attack bombardment by plane or capital ships had been ruled out, but that did not mean Jubilee would have no air cover, in fact, what was assembling at that very moment in southeast Britain was a force larger that had been brought together during the Battle of Britain. As the first streaks of light landed on Old Blighty, there were gathering there 48 squadrons of Spitfires and 8 squadrons of Hurricanes, and two of those squadrons had hurry bombers on them, or two 250-pound bombs. Anything the commandos or Canadians could reduce, these could. Moreover, Fighter Command leader Lee Mallory got to borrow three squadrons of Boston bombers. Their job, again, as the batteries were the biggest concern, was to lay down smoke and an ordnance when called on. 
Even the short-lived Army Cooperation Command was donating two squadrons of Blenheim bombers and a few Mustang fighters, which had first come over in January of that year, 1942. And considering their range and scalability, they would be sent past Dieppe to spy out any heavy enemy troop movements. Considering the Axis losses during the Battle of Britain and the newly launched Operation Barbarossa, Berlin was cautious with its fighters in Western Europe. The RAF would go up most days for a bit of raiding, but the Germans would only mostly react when the odds were in their favor. But not today. This challenge could not go unanswered, which set up a clash of titans far above the fray below. The Spitfire pilots had been told to develop an umbrella over the fleet and the men during the initial assault and then when they withdrew. Everyone else was to control the skies over the fighting during the operation. And how important was this to London? The pilots had been told we were to maintain air superiority throughout the operation, regardless of opposition or cost to ourselves. While the Spitfires covered the landings, the hurry bombers and other light bombers were to blast the known gun positions and lay smoke, to hide the ships and, where possible, hide the men on the beaches. The German air arm consisted of two fighter groups close by, about 320 aircraft, many of them being the Falk Wolf 190. This meant the Germans would be flying a plane superior, in many ways, to the Spitfire 5. And though the Allies were coming with almost 650 planes, those pilots had a long way to fly to do a little bit of fighting before fuel concerns forced them to turn around, whereas the German pilots would be able to take off two or three times that day. More besides, the defending Germans had just over 100 bombers, most being the twin-engine Dornier 217s, but they also had some Junkers 88s and Heinkel 111s. Yet the most hazard part of this was that this kind of fight had already been played out during the Battle of Britain. Now it was the Allies flying far to fight a little, while the Germans would only have to fly a little to then fight a lot. London could only hope that they and theirs could defy the odds. As these were large numbers of planes, Command and control was vital, or else all would be chaos, and that would mean the loss of many Allied ships. So, although Lee Mallory was in command of the air operations, he had Air Commodore Adrian Cole aboard the flagship Kalp. Two other officers were to direct the close support squadrons helping the infantry, and the aircraft protecting the ships was being directed by an officer aboard the destroyer Berkeley. As the batteries were the first that needed to be neutralized by the invaders, the British had found out that the Hess battery to the west had an ace up its sleeve, namely the lighthouse at Cap Dailly. It was located between Orange Beaches 1 and 2, and the Hess battery had lookouts at the lighthouse as well. So, at 4.47 a.m. that morning, two Spitfires had taken off crossed the channel, and approached the lighthouse from the west. But again, the Germans were ready, and AA fire started leaving the ground. Flying Officer Harry Jones was hit, and his plane would crash into the channel. 
but this left Sergeant R.L. Reeves to take out the light, and this he did. But he lost a mate during the process. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. To the Allies' far right, or western end of the invasion, men from Number 4 Commando were being offloaded. They saw the Spitfires overhead. There was just enough light to see them. But everyone on the ground guessed that, well, if our planes are involved, then surely the enemy knows we're here. As previously mentioned, the Hess guns on this end of the Germans' defenses were to be taken out in a pincer movement. Commando officer Derek Mills Roberts took the smaller 72-man team, having landed just east of Vastreval, and headed for the large guns. Meanwhile, a larger team, led by Lord Lavat, would land close to Kieberville, further west, and then sneak up on the guns from behind. When Mills Roberts' team made shore, they moved as fast as they could, and in preparation, they were wearing the light version of everything. Woolen caps versus helmets, gym shoes versus boots, and this resulted in them being able to carry more ammo, and it would be needed. The men made their way to the left-hand gully. As photos had shown, there were no guards there. But when the men got up the beach and reached the gully, they found why there were no guards there. The entire pass was blocked with barbed wire and lumps of chalk, obviously cut out from the height above. As there was nothing for it, a Lieutenant David Stiles used a Bangalore torpedo to blow a hole in the wire, and the men advanced. The gully led to a broader path that itself led to the Hotel der Terras. These men, running around with guns and blackface, startled a father and son. They tried to ask them a question, but none of the troops could make themselves understood. The menacing men kept moving forward, the father and son ran to a shelter. When the men took another break, Mills Roberts looked at his watch. It was 5.40 a.m., and they needed to be ready to fire on the battery at 6.15, so they were ahead of schedule. Maybe the Germans would still let themselves be surprised, given all that had happened thus far. Maybe. Which is when the quiet of the morning was lost forever, by the Hess battery as it opened up. 
sending its 5.9-inch shells towards the enemy fleet. Mills Roberts looked at his watch again. Lord Lavat's party still had 50 minutes before they were to be in position, and in that 50 minutes, many ships could be lost. So much for well-laid-out plans, Mills Roberts and company picked up their pace. Meanwhile, Lavat's group, he had 152 men with him, loaded onto four LCAs, had gone full speed when the first star shell was in the sky. Their surprise in general had been taken away, but each section on the beach would have its own fight. Lavat still hoped to cover as much ground as possible before the real light of the day came. Lieutenant Arthur Ferry Vesey led A Troop to take out the two pillboxes up ahead. The men began climbing, and fortunately, the first pillbox was empty. The men moved on. The second pillbox was manned, but not for long. With everyone in A Troop picking a target, the Germans around the gun all fell at the same time. Meanwhile, another A Trooper, Tom Finney, climbed up the telegraph pole while bullets were slamming into the wood around him and cut the wires between Kieberville and St. Margaret, the next link in the chain of command. B Troop had a harder time of it. The fire at them was more intense, and men started falling. But as Captain Gordon Webb had pounded into his head, and so he pounded into the men's head, if you are hit on the beach but can still move, then move. Survival demands that you get off the beach and behind some cover as fast as possible. But the path to cover was blocked by barbed wire, so some of the men threw rolls of rabbit netting over it, and others, wearing thick leather jerkins, pushed the wire down and began cutting a hole. The various troops made it off the beach. Of course, each troop left a few men behind, as that was the price. As for the men who were wounded but could still walk, they were taken to cover. But as they got worse, some others volunteered to stay with them. In the end, those that were wounded and those that gave them care would be captured. As tough as the commandos were, they had, after all, been through training that others simply could not complete. That was physical toughness. What they saw next required a strength of a completely different sort. A commando watched as a German broke from cover. The commando was about to shoot the man when a spitfire overhead went after him with his cannon. And cannons being what they are, a direct hit was not needed. The shell landed close enough, and the German began to fly. And when he landed, roughly, his twisted body moved no more. Next, a U.S. Ranger came upon a German who had apparently attempted to throw his potato masher, his stick grenade, but he did not get it out of his hand fast enough. The self-induced victim's stomach was open, and the Ranger could see steam rising from it. It was time to get back to the fight. The larger Lord Levant group worked themselves to a point where they now had to turn and ascend the east slope, for on top of that sat the battery. But that meant at least a mile out in the open had to be crossed to get there. Well, with only their lives to lose, the men began to run. With each step, any and all were expecting that last bullet. But it never came. 
not for any of them. Some defenders, they concluded, were still sleeping on the job. And as the Levant group got closer to the top, they heard, further north, a firefight. Clearly, Mills Roberts' group were already engaging the guns. Lord Levat hoped it was going well, and they moved out. Meanwhile, Mills Roberts and his men were hiding in a barn about 170 yards from the Hess battery. They could hear the Germans when they shouted, but nothing was clear except their shells were now firing on the British ships. Looking around, it seemed to be about 100 Germans in a fenced-off area, all of them to take care of the guns. Mills Roberts had seen enough. Selecting a tall man who seemed to be yelling out orders, a sniper was told to take him out. The rifle cracked, the German fell forward, down further into the pit, and with that, the fighting was on, as the commandos opened up with their Bruns, rifles, and a boy's anti-tank rifle, or elephant gun, as the men called it, shooting out its 14-millimeter bore. Also giving the enemy hell were two mortar teams, and the team manning the two-inch mortar were Troop Sergeant Major Jimmy Dunning, helped by Privates Dale and Horn. Well, Dunning, Dale, and Horn were about to save everyone around them a lot of time. Dunning's team got off one or two rounds, but the next missile landed amongst a stack of cordite, itself next to the number one Hess gun. As war correspondent Alexander Austin put it, he went along for the story and he was carrying supplies, the resulting explosion was louder and longer than anything they had heard that morning. It seemed to be the father and mother of all explosions. As for the two privates, they looked at each other, then looked at their hands, then looked at their launcher, and then looked back at each other. No words were sufficient. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Meanwhile, to the east, at Yellow Beach, Dunford Slater's second-in-command, Commando Captain Peter Young, took his men ever closer to the Gebel's guns. Having landed at Yellow 2, they made their way up a gully, and soon they could see the guns. Problem was, they, the guns, were in the middle of a cornfield, so approaching them undetected would not be easy. Again, the plan had been for Young and his to attack from the rear, while the larger group, who landed further east at Yellow One, would attack from the front. But Young could not reach the other group on the radio, but knew he would have to attack alone if those guns started firing on his ships, his exit. 
Just then, a young boy on a bike rode up and said to the men that there were about 200 Germans in that gun pit. Young and his 19 men moved closer. When they came upon a little village, a small enemy gun position stopped them. Not having time for this, Young decided they would back away from the small gun shooting at them and enter the cornfield. There, they would get close, hopefully close enough, and start shooting. When Young and company were about 200 yards away from the Goebbels' gun, they formed two lines and opened up. The Germans soon realized why some of their comrades were falling and started firing back. But not enough commandos died from this, so the frustrated Germans turned the closest big gun to the enemy on the enemy. Problem was, the barrel could not be lowered enough to hit them, so the ground behind the commandos soon became scorched earth. Still, Young was in a pickle. Clearly, Lord Lavat's men at Yellow One were not here, which meant Young and company were outnumbered at least ten to one. And it was only a matter of time before the Germans roused themselves and went out looking for the enemy. And lastly, Young's main objective had been to make sure that the large guns were not firing on the ships, and they weren't. They were firing at him. With this done and no yellow team won, Young decided it was time to leave. Young and his moved back to the gully, but on their way they got into a firefight with the gun's observation team. Clearly, the Germans were now out and about. It was time to go. The men gathered on the beach, but by now, Germans were on the cliff top firing down at them. Young and a Lieutenant Anthony Ruxton kept firing on the enemy to distract them. Meanwhile, the Navy saw this and sent in its small ship. The men climbed aboard, but then the vessel got stuck on some rocks. Enough equipment had to be thrown overboard to raise the ship, but then it started backing away. Problem was, Young and Ruxton were still on shore, firing, and they had been joined by a private abbot, but now the goal was to get everyone on the vessel so they could get away. The three men backed into the water, all the while firing at the Germans on the clifftop. As it was important to save as many men as possible, that craft would not be coming back in to get them. Still, a lifeline was thrown. Actually, three were thrown at the men. They grabbed those ropes and held on for dear life and were dragged to safety. But as they were heading away from the beach, they heard gunfire from Yellow One. The boats carrying the larger commando group to Yellow One had to fight their way to shore. As some ships had been lost, by the time they reassembled, Lieutenant Commander Charles Cork took command, being the most senior officer present and still alive. The five R boats went shoreward, knowing the Germans were there to meet them. Touching sand at 5.10 a.m., the team, about 120 commandos, six U.S. Rangers, and a small group of free French commandos jumped out, and they were determined to carry out their mission. But as the Germans had seen them coming, reinforcements had been called in. What happened next was anything other than short-lived and successful. The four-hour firefight that developed only benefited the Germans, as they had more men, more guns, larger guns, and better communication. The first phase of the fighting 
which went some 90 minutes, when the commandos were still determined to destroy the large guns, ended when they decided to abandon the mission and make their way back to the boats. The Navy crews were waiting, ready to charge back in and pick up the survivors, though Lieutenant Commander Charles Cork, by this time, and his coxswain had been killed. The commandos set off their flares, the R-boats came back in, but as before, they had to sail through a hail of shot and shell. When they reached shore, they realized there was no one there to rescue. But the Germans took advantage of this and focused on the five R-boats. Three were quickly destroyed, and the other two left, as there, again, was no one on the beach to save. Sadly, after the two R-boats left, some of the commandos actually reached the shore, but had no exit. By 10.30 a.m., it was all over. Those raiders that had not been killed were forced to surrender in small batches as their ammunition ran out. Postscript, 36 or 37 men died on that particular beach. 82 were taken prisoner. One of the dead was U.S. Ranger Lieutenant Edward Lucelot. He was the first American killed by the Germans in Europe. And Serge Montalier was the first French commando to be killed on his native soil. Before this war was over, these men would be joined many times over. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So uh, we finally got the troops on shore, uh, but as you can see, it's starting to fall apart already. Um, and we'll do the next episode as soon as I can. Um, so just saying hello to some new members and thanking those that have donated. Let's see here. Newest members, Harry Murray from St. Louis, Missouri. So thank you very much. Anthony Tutolo from Roanoke, Virginia. Hey, Anthony, local boy. Uh, how's it going? Uh, Daniel Gunderson from Harrison, Idaho. And Ben Luz from uh, Lidditz? Lidditz. Let's go with that because I almost said something else. Pennsylvania. Thank you, Ben. Uh, and Jared Hawk from a marketing company in Boise, Idaho. So thank you all. Uh, they became members. They get two extra episodes a month. And I think there's like 200 episodes right there waiting for anybody who signs up. Uh, as far as donations, James is at uh, Harzan. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Hassan and Bruce Anthony. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, thank you all to that listen. And um, yeah, that's it. Get in, get out, leave them wanting more. That's the old Ray motto. Uh, that's not true. Anyway, so thank you again for listening. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone.